Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, Dr. Hondorp here with another episode, and I will start by saying I've said it before and I will say it again. I am very often profoundly changed and impacted by the conversations that I have on this podcast. I still remember quotes and concepts from people I've interviewed over a year ago. I even sometimes still re-listen to the conversations to maybe remind myself of the lessons I learned or even just the feeling I had in the conversation and this upcoming conversation you're about to hear with Dahlia Kinsey was truly extra special and I'm having a little bit of a hard time putting into words exactly why it was that way for me. I think there's a bunch of different components to it but I think part of it is Dahlia's presence and you know the the level of generosity and vulnerability that's shared, including the process behind the scenes of writing this book, Decolonizing Wellness, that we talk about throughout. And but beyond that, however, Dahlia's compassion for others, myself included, who have very much missed the mark with research and health and wellness and the lack of diversity or diverse perspectives in so many fields and so many training models just made this conversation, I think, all the more meaningful. Um, And, you know, inviting Dali on the podcast to talk about the book was really important to me. And I was so glad that the invitation was accepted because I truly believe to move towards true wellness, true health, we have to unlearn a lot of what we've been taught, not only about what is healthy from a weight-centric model, but so much of what we've been taught about race, sexuality, and generally how so many of our systems, education models, and structures are set up to serve white people often white men, not person of marginalized backgrounds, is just a topic that I have a lot to learn about. I really 
like I said, have been a big part of missing the mark. And, you know, I think there's a sense of, perhaps a sense of, of shame about that sometimes, but I think I'm, I'm getting more and more comfortable with admitting that and saying I have a lot to learn. And so, like, I will admit I do have, I still do have kind of imposter syndrome or I just don't feel like I'm qualified to talk about topics related to diversity writing or, or talking about them because I'm afraid, well, A, I'm not the expert, but that's why I bring in experts to talk about it. But I'm all often afraid I'll mess things up, say the wrong thing, offend someone, which is really just my, one of my deep fears in life. But I know deep down that it is a privilege to be able to choose to learn and talk about these topics or not. And I'm kind of continually working on choosing the typically in the grand scheme of things, mild discomfort for me, it's not that uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable so that I can learn and grow. And I will admit that this, you know, I think like many people in our country, this amplified after George Floyd's murder and just having some of these things brought more to the forefront for better, for worse. And I wish I could say I was working on these things before, but the reality is that I've been trying to stay, I don't know, accountable. I kind of have my own internal system for how I track where, what I'm learning and what how I'm, I'm doing in these areas so I, I don't let it fall off my radar. So that being said, I hope you will listen in on this conversation, hear about the really incredible gift that Dahlia has given the world by sharing this book, Decolonizing Wellness. I truly believe what I said in this interview. I think that I think this book truly benefits anyone who wants to learn about wellness, diversity, equity, and inclusion as an individual or a healthcare provider. I found the book incredibly helpful. There was helpful strategies for me personally, even though the book wasn't written for me per se. And I really hope that wherever you are in your journey about moving towards your own wellness or learning about diversity or learning about where we in the U.S. or other countries have really missed the mark, I, I hope that you'll remain open, curious, humble, and just continue to be open to learning more and remembering that it's okay if there's a lot you have feel like you have a long way to go. Like that's kind of how I feel. I feel like there's still a whole lot to learn and that's okay. You can meet yourself where you're at. It's not a race. You don't have to learn it all tomorrow and there doesn't have to be perfectionism around it. So there, you just need to ask questions and, and listen. And so very grateful for the opportunity to do that here today. There's really so much value to be gained from learning about, you know, the amazing diverse experiences of human beings. And uh, again, I've said it again and again, I'm very, very grateful that Dahlia shared with us via decolonizing wellness, but also very grateful that I was able to have this incredible conversation. So in this interview, what to expect, we cover how Dahlia came to doing this work and really the courage it took for Dahlia to write Decolonizing Wellness and just some of the vulnerability of that process and how it's beyond maybe the 
typical vulnerability process of writing a book that someone else of a non-marginalized identity might have had. And we talk about some examples of the many ways that health and wellness spaces miss the mark when it comes to persons of diverse or marginalized identities. We talk about um, a statement that uh, and D Dolly had said, which is when you queer anything, it becomes more inclusive. And why I've never been more convinced of this after talking to Dahlia, but also after reading Decolonizing Wellness. And we'll also talk about what Dahlia wishes more people understood about these topics. We talk about fun things at the end, like adorable baby turtles. And we even talk a tiny bit about snakes. So stay tuned for that. And it, it's really, I think you're going to enjoy this one. I know I did. And um, yeah, that's it. So let's get started and let's dive in. Thank you for being here. Have you ever thought, I just need more willpower or if I only had more self-control? The reality is this is rarely the problem. And one of the first and most helpful steps to develop sustainable, healthy habits is to learn to make healthy living easier so we can use and rely less on willpower. Sound good? If you're wanting to learn some simple science-backed strategies to use less willpower today and start setting yourself up for success and regaining confidence, grab the free guide at drhondorp.com forward slash five tips. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P dot com forward slash the number five tips to start setting yourself up for success and regaining confidence in yourself today. And before we dive into today's episode, just a reminder that this podcast and corresponding blog is for educational and informational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for any form of professional advice. All right, everyone, let's dive in. All right, so welcome back to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. I am really, really excited and really honored to interview my guest today, Dahlia Kinsey. Dahlia, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You got it. So I'd love to get to know you better. Can you just start by telling us some of your story, how you came to doing the work that you do? I knew I wanted to help people prevent health problems. I knew I didn't want to be in clinical. I wanted to get to people before they got sick. Mm -hmm. And I felt drawn to nutrition and dietetics because my grandma is so into holistic medicine. She's not from the United States. And she always gave us the impression that 90% of your problems could probably be solved with prevention. But when I got into school with a more westernized approach to nutrition, it really felt like people by and large don't believe that the body is capable of self-regulating and taking care of itself. And there's this general distrust of anything that the patient can do on their own. Mm -hmm. And so my undergrad program was not really what I expected it to be. And there was a real focus on um, coming into a clinical situation or any kind of conversation with a client where you're the authority 
and you talk most of the appointment and you don't really rely on the client for information and you don't really expect them to be self-directed in their healing. And that was not at all the vibe that I had in mind. And in addition to that, during my course of study, I saw how influenced people were by their own racialized biases when it comes to what people think is acceptable or good food and what they think is acceptable as far as body size. There's a general vibe that there is a standard, there is a best body, and that everyone else should be doing what they can to get to that type of body, which doesn't match my values. But when I was in the program, I was a little snowed thinking that it's best to have a small body because that's the messaging I'd gotten for so long from so many places. But also being Black American, there's this pressure to not have too small of a body. So you, people are telling you to try to like nail this impossible, right? The middle standard, and you can't really control, you don't have direct control over the size of your body, not the way people think they might. So it's really more of a matter of what environment do you live in? What does your life dictate the size of your body should be? What, what actually makes sense for your your life. So if you live in a country where everything is super far apart, which would be the United States, you spend a lot of time sitting because you have to drive places. Whereas in other countries where people have laid out their cities to have grocery stores every couple of blocks, people literally go shopping for their food every day, sometimes every other day. And so physical activity is a part of their life. Naturally, you can take an American from this environment and put them over there. And they'll be surprised that without making any effort, they just continue to get smaller and smaller in that different environment. And no one really was taking that into consideration that maybe we're exactly the size we should be considering the environments we live in. And maybe your body is just fine considering what you're working with. So yeah, there was a big departure from what I thought I wanted to do and what the information was that I was actually exposed to when I started my studies. There was a disconnect there. Yes. And you, did you study dietetics and nutrition pretty early on in your undergrad experience? Yeah, I changed mm-hmm. my major a couple of times, uh-huh. but I had to, of course, go back and do some more of the sciences and biology and medical, um, medical nutrition. So really undergrad was mostly nutrition and dietetics. And after you complete that core that you do along with the nurses and the doctors, sorry, I'm at work today. My brain is fried. You are fine. (laughs) So after you do your core, you have to apply to enter the nutrition program. And then it's just a hundred percent dietetics for the rest Mm -hmm. of your time there. And then when you graduate, you need to complete about, I think it's 1500, maybe it's 1200 hours of supervised Mm -hmm. practice now. So a lot of people will do that through a master's program and other people will do that by going directly into an internship that's about to be phased out. And soon all dietitians will have a master's. But when I completed my studies, I did the internship option. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I'm curious, and you may be getting to this, but clear, you're kind of alluding to in your book, you talk about all the time how much your views have shifted from really that early weight-centric model and, you know, not really considering any aspects of diversity. I'm curious how you would describe that journey away from these standard training models. Was it gradual? Were there pivotal like shifts for you? What did that look like? It was gradual. And then there were some moments that felt like the straw that broke the camel's back type of moments. Mm -hmm. So when I was in school, I started to get suspicious about all this assumptions that were being made because when they talked about race and things that I knew to be false, it made me question the other assumptions that were being made. And when you go into a setting where you're the student, a lot of times you don't question the information you're being given because it doesn't pay to question things when it's mm-hmm. time to take your tests, right? When it's right. time to take exams. Yeah. So you pretty much just assimilate the information. But some of the assumptions related to race in particular were so offensive and so off that I knew, hey, yeah, you got to pass the test. However, it's time to start questioning some of these things. And the process of getting the degree was so exhausting from the standpoint of dealing with constant microaggressions that when I graduated, I wasn't even sure, sorry, turn that down. When I graduated, I wasn't even sure that I wanted to be a dietitian anymore. I had to take a full year off to recover. And when I decided, yes, this is what I want to do, I got a job working in public health. And that was where I could see actual clients making it clear that that focus on weight wasn't helping anyone. Mm -hmm. Number one, people's weights weren't changing and they were leaving appointments feeling worse than they did when they got there and feeling even more unsafe in their bodies and even less equipped to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And even when people focused on positive health behaviors, the underlying message was always your body's not good enough and you need to change it. And what you're doing is not good enough. Your parenting is not good enough. Anytime there was a child that came in to these public health appointments, we were supposed to harp on body size if the child was plotting high on the growth chart. And in a lot of cases, it was clear that it was exacerbating the parents' stress and that it was only going to result in temporary restriction. It wasn't going to lead to anything positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of those seeds were planted. And I, I do wonder since so, some of those aspects of what you were being taught was so, like you said, offensive and, and so wrong that it almost made you question it sooner. Cause I think a lot of times we talk on this podcast about these traditional education and we're all educated in a similar weight focus framework. And yet like, you know, sometimes it takes us a while to really start to question it. Like, some, and you were like, no. And so that planted the seed, but then you saw the clients. And I know you've had, you've talked about in your book too, your own health experiences with providers. Like it seemed like that maybe you already knew at that point, like this is inappropriate, but yeah, it really helps. You see when there's a problem, if you are 
directly affected by the negative messaging. Because yeah. a lot of times, if you're not in the group that's being bad mouthed, you may believe all the justifications that they give you. So mm-hmm. a lot of times the story about people who are in larger bodies is they're this way because they are ignorant to what a healthy diet looks like. You know, if they would just change the way they ate, their body size would change. Now, if you are in a larger body and you've already followed all the rules about how to change your body size and you didn't get the result that you're promised, then you know that's a lie. But if you are a small person, you've always been, of course, you're going to believe this because a lot of the people spouting this information are authorities in their field and they seem to be presenting research, you have no reason to question it. However, at all the times that I was in class and they talked about Black Americans having poor health outcomes, and again, the assumption was, oh, it's a knowledge deficit. They just don't have the information. They don't know how to eat properly. And people kept assuming that across the board, everybody with black skin in the United States comes from the same food culture, which couldn't be farther from the truth. Even in my own household, my mother's half Jamaican, she's half Cuban. My dad was raised in the South. Their food cultures are completely different. And my mother's food culture is so heavy on vegetables and so heavy on plants that the assumptions they were making about black American food culture don't apply to me at all. Mm-hmm. And growing up, my mother never fried anything. I remember my dad like begging <laughs> for one of those little fry daddies. He's like, hey, it's small, or yeah. I'm not going to fry that much stuff in it. But that was when I was already in my early teens. And having fried chicken was like an event. And since we didn't grow up on it, none of us kids usually ate it. It was usually for company or something. It was a big deal. Mm -hmm. But that belief that we're all eating the same thing, that let me know right there. Well, this is a study. People are looking at the results of this study and taking it seriously. And from the beginning, their assumptions are off. And from the beginning, the questions that they're asking are certainly not questions I would be asking because I would know, does it make sense to group Black people together in this study, assuming that everyone is eating in a similar way because that's not grounded in reality. Now, if you wanted to look at maybe the the toll racialized stress was having on people, then sure, group these racialized people together, but you're making behavioral assumptions based Mm -hmm. on what? And Mm -hmm. it was really interesting in classrooms with majority white students. Like on occasion, I would be in the class with one other person who self- identified as black, but was from another country. And our, our peers would tell us that she was not black, would tell her that she wasn't black, even when she said, but I am, and that's how I self-identify. And I would say, no, 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 you don't really count. How, on what planet does it make sense for someone who's been socialized as a white person to tell someone who says they're black, that they're mistaken. But that right there tells you that the people I was studying with have been raised to believe that white people set the standard for who's who, Mm -hmm. which historically has been the case in this country. Mm -hmm. Who gets to go to the colored bathroom? Who gets to go to the white bathroom? It wasn't a bunch of people of color making that decision. (laughs) So they were being true to how they were raised and socialized, but it was really a problem for me and this other student 
to go through that experience and to keep trying to explain to them your assumptions aren't adding up with our lived experience and to basically be dismissed because what we were presenting to them wasn't in writing. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the things that you can see with white supremacy culture, how it's infected the educational system mm -hmm. is that the hierarchies that are in place, there are all these different educational systems that have had gatekeepers for so long. The people writing the materials are all coming from the same place. So it's usually older, educated, middle-class to affluent white men writing these materials. And people have gotten accustomed to thinking information is not legitimate unless it comes from a source like that. But then that creates a problem because not all kinds of people are going to be creating those resources. Mm -hmm. And even if you are a person who falls outside of that demo, when you go into those environments, you are going to conform to whatever the standard is there. So you may also release information or engage with research in a way that is informed by white supremacy, even if you're a person of color or a femme person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes so many important points and so many important examples about yeah education systems, the bias that exists in research. And, you know, I love science and research. We talk about it on the podcast all the time. And yet, like, there are so many gaps that everyone has missed and, and just are not even, people aren't even realizing that when they're consuming evidence-based information and right. evidence-based information. <laughs> They, they, yeah, the listeners can't see that, but I did put quotes, air quotes around that. <laughs> and and I, I love trying to determine what is truth based on evidence. And it's all within this lens, which is so tough. And it's there's just a lot to kind of unpack there and understanding what do we know and, and what don't we know. And a lot of it we don't know or like we don't know for sure because nutrition yeah. and eating habits are so complex anyway. So yeah. Yeah. I think it's them. important to be humble like that and acknowledge that there's a lot that we don't know. And that to me is a sign of wisdom in itself. I love the concept of the scientific method and think that it can be extremely useful, but you have to remember that it is a way to gain knowledge, not the only way. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of times people may want to validate information by, you know, maybe doing a double blind study or something. That's great, but that isn't something that you can apply to all areas of life. And so yeah. just because you can't research something in that way, doesn't mean it's not true or it doesn't exist. And we think about so many things that have been validated by research there were people who intuitively already knew what the study found. So was it less true before the research was completed? You know, we need to be open to that as well and understand that of course it has its place, but isn't the only way to gain information in the world. Mm -hmm. And if a client comes in and they have a lot of ancestral wisdom or they come from an area where people have done a lot of alternative healing. It's maybe what we would call it here. If what the person is discussing with you or proposing to you will not obviously do harm 
and maybe it doesn't have to be obvious, but if you don't have any concerns that like this could actually hurt this person, is there any need for us to poo-poo their idea? Like, do, do we mm-hmm. need to? And mm-hmm. when you even think about, we call it the placebo effect here, but that kind of seems derogatory when it's actually explaining a phenomenon, which if you believe something and you're really sold on it, that your body may be able to shut off certain symptoms and may be able to shut off your experience of pain, even if it's not actually creating any physiological change. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's an asset. That isn't something we should dismiss. You have to outperform the placebo effect if you're a drug or some other kind of medical intervention to be considered effective. But that also means that there's a bunch of people who could be served by maybe some kind of ritualistic intervention that completely sells the person on what's happening. You know, when you go to a traditional healer, it's a production. You're not in and out in 15 minutes like you might be with uh, somebody who does allopathic medicine or something. And the longer you're in there, you usually you are completely sold on the experience. So you're like, it's happening, it's working, I feel better. And maybe it's just your body creating the changes. But what's wrong with that? You know, it it just seems like it would behoove the medical industry in general to be a little more open-minded about what may work for their clients Mm-hmm. even if it's not going to line anybody's pockets with money to a large extent, I think that's why people aren't willing to validate the fact that the placebo effect is helpful. It's part of how your body helps you function. And that's something we need to be aware of as consumers, that if there's no way to make money off of something, maybe in a culture where profits a little more important than people, we should be skeptical and question things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as, you know, a psychologist and as like, and you work with people one-on-one shifting beliefs around a whole bunch of things around all the things you talk about in your book. And it's like, that's a real phenomenon that can result in when we believe we are enough and we believe we are worthy of love, like all the great affirmations you have in your book that will create a different physiological response. Like that is a real, very important phenomenon. (laughs) I guess you could call that placebo effect, but I think I agree. It minimizes it. It's like, no, that's an incredibly amazing effect. And that's harder to measure, but. Right. But still so useful. And it's so interesting. I think because of the way we set things up here in the United States, if you have a credential, then people may think you're interchangeable with other people. When in reality, I've had MDs, I've had dentists, I've had therapists that were clearly head and shoulders above above like the last 10 people I've been to with that same title. So Mm -hmm. it's, it may seem like in general, the medical system as a whole is not nailing it, but there are all these individual providers that are extraordinary, but it's hard to find them because a lot of people, I feel like don't even feel comfortable leading with the ways that make them different. Like, how do you advertise that 
you're open, if you're not doing functional medicine, how do you advertise it? Like, I'm actually a safe person to come to, if you're going to come to me and tell me about, you know, I don't know, some random <laughs> healing modality you heard about that I know won't hurt you, but I'm pretty confident doesn't actually change anything. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you advertise that. A lot of people are afraid that their peers will think they're rejecting science and they've gotten they've gone off the deep end. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a, such a great question and point. And yes, marketing and advertising is, it's an interesting challenge in itself, but, um, well, I feel like we could talk about all of those topics all day, but I I'd love to transition a bit and talk about your book. This is a book that just, I mean, it had to have been a tremendous amount of work. Tell me about the process. Like congrats also and tell Thank us about you. why you wrote decolonizing wellness and just what it was like to write it that's two questions in one but you can start wherever you want <laughs> it feels like the book was trying to write itself for a long time but I had a lot of fear around speaking openly about anything to do with race sexuality and gender expression because of the part of the country I was raised in as far as orientation and gender expression goes, there's so little acceptance that gender isn't really binary and that being attracted to people regardless of their, you know, physical form is normal, that there's a lot of diversity in human sexuality, not mm -hmm. accepted here in the Southern United States. And there's a lot of homophobia in the black American community as well. And honestly, and I would say the black Jamaican community as well. And I'm not giving other Jamaicans a pass. I just don't know <laughs> for sure what they're up to. I just know from the things I've heard growing up that yeah, it was just as bad in Jamaica as it is here in the States, I will say in Cuba that they were paying for gender affirmation surgery, like for a while now. So I'm assuming that means it feels safer to be trans in Cuba. And I've never heard my relatives there say anything transphobic or homophobic, but I haven't done any research. So those are my assumptions. But anyway, mm -hmm. in my life, I had a lot of anxiety around being out to everybody. So I was out to friends for years, out to the sibling I'm closest with for decades, but still felt like, hey, if I'm fully out that it could affect my ability to support myself. Like what if someone doesn't want to hire me because they know I'm not straight? And what if my parents like abandon me because I'm open with my orientation? Because I still think they got the vibe, but they also were raised in such a way that they understand that maybe some people have these tendencies, they would call them, but they feel the right thing to do is to play them down and to keep them secret and to keep them under control slash, you know, that means some people don't have permission to have romantic love in their life, according to, you know, their belief system. Mm -hmm. So that made me reluctant to write about the things I wanted to write about. And then when it comes to race, so many times I've been reprimanded over the years when I identified like something that hurt me or troubled me or 
when I felt like I was really blocked from an opportunity and I was confident it was related to race, people would always question it, ask you to prove it or get upset if you explain it was something they'd done that had hurt you and maybe cry and make a big deal. And then you end up having to comfort the other person rather than you getting to create a safer space for yourself. So all of that <laughs> I had to work through to yeah. feel okay, mm -hmm. actually talking about these issues and you have to feel safe to write as yourself, to show up authentically, you have to be experiencing some level of safety. And I kept beating myself up about procrastination and about not reaching goals like with writing or in my business or even the way I was showing up in social media. But when I worked with a coach that specifically deals with racialized trauma, I was able to see that I was literally petrified. And that's why I kept avoiding certain things and that I needed to sit with those fears and see, well, where do these come from? How much of this is still true? And let's say the worst case scenario plays out, like, is it literally going to kill me? And I, the answer I came up with is probably not. And that's a probably, that's a weird and sad thing about it. Growing up black in the United States, there's so many things that I've been aware of my whole life as far as racialized violence that a lot of Americans have never heard of because they don't teach you about it in school. And to a large extent, people like play down how much of a crime against humanity enslaving people was, and people really played down like the genocide that took place here as well. And so, but I, as a person who had to be aware of that sort of thing to stay safe, knew forever that people have been killed, people have been lynched for speaking the truth about discrimination. And so even though I didn't really ever feel like that was a real and present danger in my life as a child, just seeing it, it makes you nervous about speaking up because you don't, you know, want mm -hmm. to have to deal with that kind of violence. So I had to do a lot of work to feel safe enough to say what I needed to say. And through the pandemic though, when George Floyd was murdered, that wasn't so much a catalyst as people's reactions to that because my whole life, we've talked about like driving while black is always like, um, people would even say jokingly, like you better be careful, get that taillight fixed because you knew that you could die at a traffic stop and you would say like remember your dwb like all the time but it's just funny to me how many people didn't know this was a thing because this was an everyday thing for me growing up but when people in my life didn't have anything to say in support of black lives matter and when people in my life were actually upset because they were taking that to mean people were saying that somehow white lives had become less valuable which is absolutely not the message mm -hmm. I felt like I couldn't be quiet anymore. And that all of these years of playing small and all of these years of assimilating and all of these years of trying to make the white people around me comfortable had put me in a space where I felt like the anxiety from the pandemic and from just that wave of the civil rights movement was going to kill me. And if not kill me within the next few years, it was definitely shortening my lifespan. I already have Graves disease. And a lot of times 
flares can be triggered by stress. So my hair started falling out again. I had hand tremors and this was all related to stress and anxiety. And I thought, what good is it doing me to play small? The promise was always, if you behave, if you assimilate, if you go to school, if you don't have children out of wedlock, if you're not on welfare, then people will regard you somehow as a good one and your life will be safer and you'll be exempted from racism. And that's not the truth. And I said, you know, I don't care if it ends up meaning horrible retaliation at this point, it has to be said. And I think about the other people that are younger than me, or maybe even peers that could be saved years of effort of trying to understand that a lot of the things we're struggling with, it's not about a personal failing, it's a response to systemic problems. I wanted to save people that time and to possibly like reduce other people's suffering by completing the project. And so then I felt like my desire to help other people became larger than my desire to stay safe and be invisible. I, I really, I mean, I appreciate you sharing all of that. There's so much there and like just even your vulnerability of like saying that and saying how hard that is. And, and I'm thinking like, I didn't realize it would be that hard not that it I knew it'd be very hard to write the book and even the content but yet like there's so many layers that you had to go through to create this gift for the world and so I just I just want to like express my appreciation for that because I guarantee this book will help people it helps people that don't even fall into the categories it's specifically for and yet it's just it's just really unfortunate that it has to writing a book is going to be hard no matter what. And there's so much self-reflection and yeah. So I, I just appreciate you sharing that process because I hope that helps people. I know it helps me, but helps listeners understand like that, that it, what a, what a true gift it is. It's, it's not, and, and it sounds like too, and I, I can't remember the specific quote, but I was like underlying things in your book. You kind of talk about just the and your book is all about not suppressing truly who you are and like writing this book it sounds like was part of your your truth and who you are yeah and like holding it in was making you sick and that's kind of what the book's all about is that right like am I that's getting that right that's 100% 100% right and I don't think I even realized that until a friend I was talking to somebody about how I wanted people to get the book and benefit from it and I wanted to somehow be able to stay invisible at the same time. I'm like, how can I market the book and be able to retreat into the shadows? So that's part the introversion and then part all these other things I mentioned. Mm -hmm. But she said, you know, I think this is your work because so many of the things over the years that I've known you that have caused you such, so much anxiety this book is blowing it out of the water. Like you have to face it now. You have to deal with it. Like how will your parents treat you if you're out? How will, you know, your neighbors treat you? What, what all is going to change? Because I've been changing my behavior so much in fear of these things. The book really set me free to a large extent because I'm like, it's out there now. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, so like how yeah. it's been, it, we're recording in April. So it's been really just two months, right? February, March. Am I doing Yeah. Like how, how has it been? Like, ha, what's it been like? This is the funny thing. Maybe at some point there will be pushback or some kind of showdown, mm -hmm. but so far nothing. 
just absolute <laughs> crickets. Everything I was afraid of hasn't happened. Well, I did have like a, it wasn't a fun conversation with my mother, but she wasn't cruel, but she basically was like, yeah, that wouldn't be something that I would want to read. It sounds a little, she used the word shady, like just not Christian enough, I guess not holy enough. I don't know, but that's what I expected. And she said it as nice as she could. And she hasn't stopped talking to me. So that's better than I thought that was going to go. And my Mm -hmm. dad is always more chill. I feel like I'm being unfair to my mom. My mom's perfectly lovely. My dad is like super chill. So I wasn't really worried about him. Um, And he's said like, just because I don't approve of your lifestyle, which again, this is how I was born, but from their perspective, it's a lifestyle. He's like, my job was to raise you and keep you safe. And I'm always going to love you and be proud of you no matter what, which is for me, that was like a winning statement. I'm like, okay, so I haven't been abandoned. They don't hate me. They don't think I'm disgusting. And as far as pushback professionally, or even like white colleagues getting upset, I haven't heard anything. If anybody is upset, they're keeping it to themselves I've gotten so much positive feedback from some of the same, not the individual people, but like the types of people I thought would be angry. Absolutely not everybody. So in my head, I was making, this is what your brain does. It likes to put things into boxes and oversimplify. So I was thinking, Mm -hmm. Was going to get all this retaliation from cis white women. And that is not <laughs> at all been the case. So it's been very helpful and healing for me to understand that, like, I'm safer now as an adult than I've ever been. And I'm becoming more safe because I'm creating a container in which I only allow safe people in. And I yeah. think a lot of the distress I was having before was because I wasn't setting enough boundaries And I now I'm like repelling some of the people who would have a problem with me leading with my marginalized identities. And that is Mm -hmm. the best thing I could do for my own well-being. Mm -hmm. But I never would have guessed that this scary thing was going to make my life feel more safe overall. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing how like you talk about it in the book that we're wired for connection and we pursue belonging and, and safety and, and, and that's because we're social beings and yeah, like, yeah, the experience of actually doing something like writing this book is a whole different thing to, to, and that's, it's not the same experience at all. But when I, on the podcast, as a psychologist started to share my own personal experience with like the binge diet cycle, I was worried people would think I was unprofessional and things like that. And it's it's same like you have all these fears and then you're like oh maybe some people do but they haven't told me and but it's yeah. very easy for that to get you like not sharing but yet like like going back to what you said earlier I believe in data and I believe in stories and like so right but and I think that's an important balance yeah a lot of times the things that we're most afraid to be transparent about those are the things that set us apart and that people will love us the most for. It's like the things about us that are different, that we know are different, maybe from our peers or our family. You maybe have played them down over the years. Sometimes people don't mean to hurt you when they're raising you, but you can give a child messaging even without negative reinforcement. So it doesn't 
necessarily mean that every time somebody did something, you gave them a spanking. What if every time somebody did something that was the opposite behavior, you gave them a treat or you gave them praise? Like, oh, Sean never needs anything. She's the best baby. That really sends you a message that like, oh, people like it when you are self-sufficient, you never need anything. So if I show that I need anything, it's going to be poorly received. Or yeah. if I show that I have any weaknesses, if I'm a professional, everyone will think, they don't want to work with me because I'm a human being and I'm supposed to be like up here and not reveal any of my flaws. But the exact opposite tends to happen. I'm sure some hater in the background is judging, mm -hmm. but it draws in so many people who won't just like you, but will feel connected to you and really, really want to be in relationship with you, whether that's mm -hmm. professionally or personally. And the funny thing is when you really show up as yourself, those lines start to blur, not in a problematic way, but mm -hmm. that you start finding the people that you end up networking with are people you actually want to be friends with. Mm -hmm. And I know years ago when people would talk about networking it always sounded so weird and like predatory <laughs> you have this service you want to push on everybody you want to find a way to manipulate them and get them to share but when you're just being yourself at work and your work aligns with what you think is important as far as your values go and your passions go networking is just making friends mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and even if you're an introvert it can be easy if you do it in small containers, which is why I love podcasting. Agreed. I don't think it yeah. can get any easier, yeah. right? You bring yeah. together people with common interests. You're actually being yourself. It's the totally. opposite of everything, you know, you fear as a teenager. It's like, oh, people are going to find out I'm unique and they'll hate me forever. <laughs> it's so true. It's so like freeing. And yeah, I agree with everything that you just said, basically. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering if, so I don't, I don't know if you want to, I was wondering if we could go over a couple of examples or stories, like you have a page in your book and you have an exercise where you encourage people to take 10 minutes to write out some of the microaggressions they they've experienced. And, and maybe we could just share a couple of examples of, of that. So people can get a picture of like why the stand, the standard approaches for wellness and why they don't speak to any diverse marginalized identities, why that's so problematic. Yeah. The chronic stress of being treated like you're less than or different. It, it's such a burden, you know, it really exacerbates anything else you go through. And I think one thing I really understood during 2020 was that a lot of people were misinterpreting phrases like privilege to mean that people think if you have white skin, you have no problems. Obviously that's not true. If you are a human, you have problems. <laughs> there's like life is like a series of problems for you to figure out. And then there's fun stuff in between, but it's mostly like puzzle after puzzle after puzzle. But if you are a racialized person, so any kind of person of color, if you are a disabled person, if you are a queer person, in addition to all those regular, just being a human being problems, you have another layer and it is unrelenting. So there is not a day that goes by that my blackness doesn't affect me. And it sounds extreme to people, especially since a lot of people thought we were living in a post-racial society. And by people, I mean, 
people are not people of color. <laughs> so people are surprised at how constant it is. But in that list, I just give an example of just the things that came to mind off the top of my head. There's countless other examples of times when I've been basically made to feel really, really bad. You know that feeling when somebody says something, it hurts your feelings, but not just a little bit. It also touches on something that you've been afraid can be true. Like maybe I'm not enough. You know, if someone comes up to you and says, Sean, your face is purple and I don't like purple people. That's not going to face you. But if somebody says, you know what, I just have this thing about blondes and I had this bad, that might bother you because you've heard this negative messaging about blonde hair over the years. And even though part of you knows that's false, part of you is bothered by it. You know, Mm -hmm. there's tension Mm -hmm. around it Mm -hmm. or like, oh, I got to prove I'm smart all the time or I can't let people know I like silly things or whatever, you know, right? for sure. Yeah, because it's tied to something that you really have a lot of negative experiences around, even if they weren't said to you personally, you see it Mm -hmm. in the media, you see it everywhere. Yeah. So when somebody says something about blackness, it doesn't maybe just bother you a little bit. Usually it feels like somebody punched you in the stomach. You know, when you get bad news and it just feels like, ugh, your whole digestive mm-hmm. system is just like, bleh. it gives you that type of feeling, mm-hmm. extreme distress. Mm-hmm. So people call it microaggressions, but it's serious. Like it's pretty violent. It makes you feel terrible and you usually don't have any outlet for it because I know as a black femme presenting person in particular, there are all these stereotypes about black women being so loud and so angry. So even if I express discontent in what I feel is the most chill, mild way, people usually lose their minds and start with like, just, just calm down, just invalidating you. So it's not really safe usually to say anything is wrong Mm -hmm. and you have to go wait until you feel nothing about it to come back around to it. And by then you may think, is it even worth the effort? But some of the examples I mentioned when I got into my internship, they had a rubric, you know, the rubric was public and I was off the charts. You know, I got my spot in the internship because I scored higher than a lot of my peers. I speak two languages. I had years of experiences, of work experience. You got extra points for that. I got points for like assignments that I turned in. Basically they get you to validate that they will find you useful as free labor for a year. (laughs) They don't want you just showing up and learning. They want you showing up and working while you learn. So, but someone said to me, oh, you know, they just needed more black people. So then that just invalidates all of my experience and all of my work. And the assumption is not only was I not qualified, it was handed to me. And the belief is that there's no way I was more qualified than my white competition, which something that a lot of people don't understand is because you get this messaging your whole life, like you gotta be three times better to get half the credit. I was told that ad nauseum as a child. And I knew multiple people who, when schools integrated in my hometown, that they had the experience of many times teachers changing their scores because they said it didn't make sense. You must have cheated because the black student scored higher than their white peers. So I know better than to show up. I'm not even gonna say I know better. I've been trained to because I don't think this is necessarily positive. I do not show up anywhere 
where there's any doubt that I'm not ready to annihilate. I show up over-prepared. So I never would have turned in the application if I didn't know I was going to score very near the top. I already was aware of the general things that I needed, and I was laying the foundation for that for years. And the funny thing was the person who had the audacity to say that to me had like a 2.0 in their sciences, which is not going to cut it. And so anyway, but they, they came from their heart. They really thought like the only way I didn't get it was, you know, they're giving it away to the minorities. False. Another example that came to mind was people complimenting me on my physical beauty, but with the caveat that like, um, for a black person. And the insinuation there is like, oh, if you say to somebody, you're pretty for a black girl, if you say to somebody, you're pretty for a trans girl, you're saying generally y'all are ugly. On what planet is that a compliment? And yet people say it all the time, or even a coworker who I really believe they saw me as a friend and I did up until that (laughs) statement when they said like you know I don't really like black people but you're like an oreo so I just love hanging out with you but the rest of them like hmm yeah no that that's not a compliment I don't aspire to be assimilated I've been assimilating for safety and because my parents assimilated for safety in a lot of ways as well. There are a lot of things I don't know that I wish I know that I feel like I've been robbed of. That's like standard black American culture that I didn't get exposed to because I was raised in a majority white church and yeah, was just taught to play down anything that seemed ethnic. That's in air quotes. So it feels really gut-wrenching when somebody compliments you for something that you have grief around because you feel like you lost a chance to engage with the culture you find beautiful. And then also it makes you question yourself because you're like, well, I didn't mean to come off as someone who doesn't love their blackness. And I already have other issues around that from being told by black people that they don't think I'm black enough, which is ridiculous because Mm-hmm. Black people are diverse, like all other kinds of people. There is no one way to be black, but at the same mm-hmm. time, if you hear it enough, you will get issues around that. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was just my, just the few that came to mind. Yeah. And I, I mean, all of those, I, again, appreciate you sharing them because I, I mean, first of all, there's like, we can all experience like that example you gave of like the gut punch, whatever that is. Like we can all put ourselves in a situation where we've worked incredibly hard for something. We go in knowing we're fully prepared and then to have someone insinuate that you didn't earn it is, it would be really hard regardless of, but then we're making implications about why and all these different intersections of identities. There's so many layers. And I think it really my hope is, and I'm sure it will help people to understand that it's like, this is, this doesn't, should not be this hard. And yet it's a reality and it's a daily reality that that's why you said 10 minutes only for this exercise, because it could go on and on and on and, and not that's, and, and then I love too, how you have writing out those statements and kind of like expressing the pain there and like letting it go. I forget the exact statement of like, oh, I've been wronged. I give myself permission to release this hurt. Um, I think that's really powerful. I know it's really powerful and it's 
yeah, I appreciate you sharing all of that. I didn't know that self-validation was something I even needed or I had no concept of it before therapy, honestly, and realizing that you have to feel a feeling before it'll mosey on. Cause it comes there to tell you something you just need to walk through it. And it's okay if at the time you don't have the capacity to walk through it, but it doesn't disappear <laughs> if you don't experience it. I didn't really realize that as a kid, that wasn't something anyone ever explained. Probably most people raised in the eighties. They never heard that either. <laughs> most, most, yeah. Even still, <laughs> we still get some yeah. better education to do, but it definitely was quite bad. <laughs> so it really helps when, when you're talking with another person and they can validate mm-hmm. and maybe not try to fix. Cause a lot of these things can't be fixed, but just be like, Oh, I hear you. And that must've been so hard or just to, so you f- feel like you're not imagining this. You're not doing something wrong. It really yeah. was as bad as you thought it was, but to know that you can also do that for yourself is so helpful because you can't always get that from anybody else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, I, I want to ask so many different things, but I'm going to move to some other questions. Cause I feel like we have so many good things to talk about and I want to be mindful of your time, but, um, I want to mention this quote that I actually listened to you on a couple different podcasts, but one quote you had said, um, it was on a, a podcast called queer hustle. And you said, when you queer anything, it becomes more inclusive. I, I think Jen said that when you interviewed her on that, um, Girl book club and it's it feels so true reading your book so can you speak to that why do you think that is I feel like people who have been treated like they're less than and they've done the work to realize there's a lot of lies you're told when you're being socialized that aren't true and they don't serve you they don't help anybody then it helps you question other things so of course not everybody does this but when some people experience discrimination, they get more introspective and they learn how to not perpetuate that kind of hurt and abuse. And so they're more likely to create spaces where they say, everybody come in. Like I know so many cis white lesbians that are constantly doing social justice work, like just nonstop, like that's their passion. And I think a lot of that comes from realizing the areas where you don't have privilege, but then noticing there are areas where you do have more power. You can help someone else who's disempowered. Mm-hmm. And I see it a lot in spaces where people want to lead with their queerness, like to make more and more room for everybody to be an individual because there mm-hmm. is room for everybody. It's more of a mental block that there isn't. Like even with accessibility, mm-hmm. so many people act like it's such a chore to make reasonable accommodations. But if you would have thought about the fact that not everybody can walk, not everybody can lift 30 pounds, when you set up your building, when you set up your store, when you set up your business, then it wouldn't be that hard. The, mm-hmm. But you build stuff for one type of person and then it's hard to retrofit. Mm-hmm. If you just remember that, human diversity is a good thing and you're not doing anybody any favors by installing a ramp that we want everybody to be there because it benefits all of us. Well, then it's easy. And I feel that vibe a lot of times in, in queer spaces. Yeah. That's what I 
really felt reading your book is just like, and I think Jen said this too, it wasn't necessarily written for Jen or me, right? And yet there's like this feeling of like, you know, there is some discomfort reading about challenging things that many people have had to go through with marginalized identities. So I don't want to say like, it's just really enjoyable. It's a wonderful (laughs) book, you know what I mean? But it's like, there is this discomfort and it feels like, it feels like it's sort of a, a warm blanket of like, we're all, you know, there, there's body diversity, there's a diversity of all types and it's a very warm, nice feeling. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I'm yeah, glad you that's like it. <laughs> the goal. Like that's, there really is room for everybody. It's so funny. Someone came to me not long ago and asked, is a cis straight white woman and asked like, should I, basically she wanted to know, should she be making anything anymore? Should she be saying anything? Hmm. And it's just so interesting the way we might hear things based on messaging we've gotten over the years. There may be somebody out there who, believes that, but I don't believe that. I think that everybody should come to the party. Like everybody should be included. And that Mm -hmm. equity, it's not like a pie, you know, you don't necessarily have to never create anything again that has a white person at the center in order for everyone's voices to be heard. Mm -hmm. I think it's helpful for everybody to have an experience of seeing themselves in a support position and especially like cis straight white men, they haven't seen that a lot. You know, they haven't seen it demonstrated. Even I was watching the new Spider-Man movie the other day, which I thought was great. But then at the very end, my brain was like, oh, but the brown people are sidekicks and he's still the lead, still a good movie and (laughs) progress is progress. But I'm like, when will white men get to see themselves in a support position? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's better for everybody if we can see ourselves both in the lead, supporting, being aware of our privileges, being aware of the areas where we don't have power. Like there's room for everyone. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting to me that somebody who was really trying to do the work to be anti-racist thought that maybe they were supposed to like never say anything again. Yeah. I'm like yeah. that's not the goal. Right. Right. And yet, yeah, there's just, yeah, it's not, I appreciate that very much. And I want to ask a million things, but I'm, I'm curious I, and we'll move into like our motivation, motivation questions that we do at the end in a little bit here, but we've covered a lot. I think that I, I think you want people of marginalized identities to know and, or other people, is there anything you want to add that you really hope people take away from this conversation and, or they should get your book, but like other like main takeaways you want people to know about wellness and, and these topics? that what feels good to you is really crucial. And at no point does your preferences and your consent become unimportant in healthcare settings. Mm -hmm. And just, just remember that even if it feels like the power dynamic is off, you're the patient and this person has all these credentials, your consent always matters. And what feels good to you, what feels right to you is always important. And a lot of times it is an indicator of what direction you should be moving in. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's, we, we talk a lot about autonomy here and I know you talk about that in your book and I think you're, I'm quoting you a lot today, but it's like, I, (laughs) I, you said something like you're the one calling the shots, like, and, and that's kind of what you're saying, what feels good to you and ultimately like what feels right. And, uh, yeah, it's a powerful message. Um, well, so we'll move on to our motivation question. So for the intrinsic motivation question, what is one thing that you have truly intrinsic motivation for? So you do it for the inherent satisfaction of it. You find it enjoyable, challenging, and or interesting in its own, just by doing it itself. When I look at that question, it feels really boring, but I feel like going hiking or going on nature walks. Well, I, is, boring. <laughs> I just go to what I found the cutest little turtle the other day. It was like the size of a quarter and it like made my day. <laughs> That's so small. That sounds incredible. I'm just Aww. trying to cross the sidewalk. <laughs> and yeah, I will just go out there just to look around. Even finding snakes is interesting to me, especially seeing how other people react to the snakes. It's just... <laughs> I don't want to find any spiders out there. I like snakes. (laughs) And yeah, I would do that just for the sake of doing it like every day forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you like an all weather hiker or certain weather? I am. The rainy days with no thunder and lightning are the best because nobody else goes. There you go. Yeah. And then it's just so quiet and then more animals come out too, because they think that we're not coming (laughs) and it's great. That's my favorite. No, I don't think that's boring at all. I love it. I, I also definitely like being outside. Um, I'm not always as adventurous in the rain, but I, I, I can do it. I should be. <laughs> you know, it's like you get your raincoat and your rain boots, and then you can jump in all the puddles you want, and no one will see you acting Heck like yeah. a child. <laughs> so that's, the yes. rainy days are my favorite. That's intrinsic joy right there. Love it. Yeah. Um, the next one is from a should to a choose to. So, what's an example of a behavior that used to be a should for you? Maybe you struggle to do consistently, but you figured out a way to do it more consistently maybe because you value it as part of your identity, even if you don't always love it. I'm going to say marketing. So at first marketing to me was like just social media marketing. And I was so hard for me to show up as myself, but the post where I would just talk, like I was speaking to a friend, those always got the most traction and, but it was so hard to do them. So I found that what I needed was a way to feel safer when I was creating content and being in a group that feels like it has a closed door feels better because you feel like the people who came in came in because they understand you to some extent and want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. And when you're just out posting like a public post on Instagram, it feels like you might be attacked at any moment to me. That's what it felt like. Oh, same. <laughs> It's not just you. (laughs) So I was like, you know what? I just, I'm just on Substack now and I feel so much safer there. I also feel like I trust readers more, which I don't know if that's classist or weird or suspect, but I spent so much of my childhood at the library. I've never had a bad experience at the library. I hope I don't talk one up, but like in 
40 years really probably of going because my mom also is obsessed with the library never bad experience so I'm like readers are trustworthy people and so I'm gonna do that yeah also this like theory of motivation part of me that's fascinating because really what we know about motivation and how we move to like from a should to a choose to is safe spaces and environments, Mm -hmm. right? So if someone like had a terrible relationship with movement and exercise and they wanted to do more of it, one great way is like find an inclusive space where they feel safe to learn to like it potentially, right? And yeah, so then, so of course I have to tie that because that's, that's so cool. And of course, like the listening to the intuition piece and, and being able to do what feels right. Cause I've definitely been on that journey myself, which has led me farther and farther away from any form of social media, but I'll definitely be checking out yeah. Substack. Super excited. Yeah, about Maybe that. you could just put the podcast up there because I don't know what it's going to take for people <laughs> to realize podcasts are awesome. Cause I listen to them every day of the week. But there's mm-hmm. still a lot of people who don't know what a podcast is, but I this know. will put it right in yeah. their inbox. So yeah. your parents can stop being like, where can I watch your podcast? So, no, it was emailed <laughs> to you. You press the button. Yes. <laughs> you oh my gosh. It. I, that is very, that's, that is great. I'm so glad that multiple levels with that answer. <laughs> um, and then the final question before we tell people where they can learn more about you is a main part of our mission here on this podcast is teaching people to reclaim trust with their bodies so they can live more courageous, connected lives. I feel like we've already really touched that. on a lot of those themes, but can you share a few, an example or two, I guess, or maybe just highlight what we already talked about where you're living more courageously or building connection that you're proud of? Really? Hmm. It feels like it's hard to bring it down to one thing, but I think the biggest thing was learning to ask myself, what do I really want to do? As simple as it is, Mm -hmm. has been so helpful. Mm -hmm. Then when you see somebody leaves you a message and you're like, I just ask, what do I really want to do? And understanding that if I don't want to call somebody back, I honestly don't have to. Maybe it's not the most mature thing to do, or at least not what I've been socialized to believe is mature, but I literally don't have to do much of anything. And that has been so liberated that I can do what I want to do. And at nine times out of 10, what I want to do is exactly what I should be doing. Mm -hmm. You have choices, you have options and giving yourself that permission. Yeah. Yeah. And whenever I've been doing that in the last couple of years, I keep finding them making more room for what I want more of mm-hmm. that. I was taking up room in my life with the things that I thought I had to do mm-hmm. or should do. Mm-hmm. And when I just stop that, all these other things that are so much better for me individually, keep showing up and taking up those other spaces. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. And, and really there's, like I said, that throughout this conversation, the courage and like kind of persistence that it took to write the book. Right. And, and just all that, like the ways you're building connection and ways that feel safe and helping people to feel seen. So very cool. You've got lots of examples, but I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we know we can learn more about and connect with you on Substack once we learn more about that. (laughs) And um, where else can people learn more about the work you're doing and connect with you? Anything else you want them to know? 
I'm also on LinkedIn and I do show up there periodically and daliakinsey.com is also like a really quick way to just see what I'm up to at the moment. Perfect. And we will link to all of that. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk with you today, Dahlia, and thank you for all the work that you've done and are doing. Same here. This has been great. I really appreciate you having me on. If you're anything like me, you may at times really feel like there's so much pain in the world that it's pretty overwhelming. And even though I do my best to avoid the news, it's hard to avoid feeling helpless at times that you can't do anything to make positive change. Well, I'm here to tell you that there's one positive change that I've made in terms of where I buy my books, and I'd invite you to do the same. Bookshop is a website that supports local bookstores near you as well as affiliates that work with them. So if you buy through the bookshop link, you're going to be supporting local bookstores near you in the U.S. and Canada, and you're going to be supporting my blog and podcast. It's kind of like a tip jar. Did you know that if nothing slows their momentum, Amazon will have about 80% of the book market by the end of 2025? Look, I have Amazon Prime, I love the convenience, but this is a super cool way that you can do something positive with where you buy your books and support some really positive causes. Make sure you check it out. You can find all of my favorite books about health and wellness, but also about topics like courage, vulnerability, and even some of my favorite fiction and kids books for the times when you just need some fun, downtime, or some meaningful stories. My recent favorite is related to improving the quality of our lives and the way we use technology and really doing so from a value-based place. No pressure. It's not going to tell you that technology is bad. It's just going to help you to evaluate for you where the pros outweigh the cons and where they don't. So if you believe in supporting local, controlling the things that you can, please consider buying your books through Bookshop and through the Psychology of Wellness link. You can find that in the show notes, or you can go to drshawnhondorp.com. That's D-R-S-H-A-W-N-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash bookshop. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable, and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, It would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.